major topic of, of 2020, just in general. There was gonna be some, some pushback and some dispute. It's not for your benefit, it's for, for their benefit and their well-being, their safety. There wasn't guidelines, there wasn't regulation. Uh, I think for the most part, we were on top of things. Am I able to get out of this contract? COVID-19. Sound Smart Business, where your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stomp, cover business in the news and add their awesome legal twist. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast brought to you by Pasha Law PC, a law firm representing your business in California, Illinois, New York, and Texas. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stobb. Hey, how's it going? This is Nasser Pasha. This is Matt Stobb. And today we're talking about everyone's favorite subject in the workplace, that is COVID-19. I don't know if anyone else is tired of talking about it, but we thought we'd share our legal experience and hopefully switch things up just a little bit for everyone here. Right. And, you know, obviously it's been the major topic of, of 2020 just in general, but for particularly in the employment sense too, or for any anyone that was going to an office every day, I would think, what, at least 90% of those people have been working from home, at least in some capacity, some still might be. And from the employer side, there's been a lot of challenges uh, that they've had to kind of navigate since, what would that be, since March, essentially. So we're, right. we're, we're going to get into some of those today, how, you know, what's kind of transpired over that time and some some personal, not personal, some antidotes from some of our clients on how they've how they've kind of navigated those seas. Yeah, we want to share kind of our experience because it's you know, when this first started out and I remember it must have been February or early March when like I remember I I could not get on a phone call or a meeting where the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes was just occupied by COVID. And and the thing is in in retrospect it's almost kind of funny because you know, everyone would be making jokes like, okay, well, what what is this coronavirus and why, you know, and then they would talk about the corona beer, they would talk about elbow bumping, they would talk about, oh, let's not shake hands and this and that. And like, it was, it was truly a joke, you know, I mean, it was something that, like, oh, but like, I heard this, I heard that. And, and it didn't take long. That was probably for a few days or, or maybe a week where the not sh short after that, all of a sudden it kind of became a reality, right? Because now people are going and staying home. Now you have the you have these gov government orders nationwide, state, uh, local, county that now are saying you cannot go to work. You have to stay home because this thing is spreading. And that I, again, I don't need to tell anyone because everyone has experienced it. But it was a very interesting time, in particular for us as lawyers, as business lawyers, because now we're receiving a flood of questions and that's really what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was, it, there was a point when kind of everybody seemed to, to not know a lot of things. And uh, right. we, like you said, we had our clients reaching out to us and we, we were diligently working to, you know, 
research on our own and as best as we could, because again, not, not even all the answers were there. And there's still a lot of unknowns. And at certain, certain times, we had to make assumptions on what we think was going to happen and obviously convey that to the client. But yeah, there was, it was a pretty wild time looking back. And, you know, the, we just wanted to speak on some of the, the key things that popped up over that time and where we're, where we're at then and where we're at now. Right. And, and Matt, I'm, I'm curious what you think about this because during that time, and it's not that it's over, but from our perspective, you, we've kind of dealt with all the, the major issues. But I really, I, I did get some kind of you know personal, professional satisfaction from that period of time because we were, we were literally practicing a, some level of frontier law. You know, I, I have friends in the medical industry, and, and they talked about how they were treating coronavirus at that time. It was frontier medicine. You're, you're the, the the concept of being that you're you're away from everything. You have very little information, and you have to you have to start doing these things that are based upon instinct, based upon your experience and the knowledge that you have. Because all of a sudden, you're you're being put forth new facts, and in a way, we I felt the same way. Like not only were we dealing with new facts, but also new law in the sense like law was being passed, and law, what I mean by not only from like the Congress, but also government state orders and these regulations that were evolving very rapidly. And there was some, I don't know, some personal professional satisfaction from it. I, 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 I don't want to like, you know, highlight too much of the silver lining, but it, it definitely was there. No, for sure. I mean, for we have, we do have quite a bit of healthcare law that we do and clients that are in those field and yeah, for them to, to make those accomplishments and even kind of on the other, on, on the genetic side, on the AI side, yeah, it's there's definitely a lot of uh, take some pride with <laughs> with how our clients have have worked through this and kind of elevated everything as a whole, right? And everyone's seen a lot of a lot of businesses have pivoted either out of necessity or through opportunity. But let's start with the beginning. The first thing is I think we had to deal with very quickly is from one day to another you have an entire workforce working from home. And so telecommuting is fortunately, from a legal perspective, nothing new. But for a lot of businesses, it was completely new. And even where businesses weren't designed to be done remotely or work done remotely, they had to adjust. And we dealt with that. Right. I mean, there's just even from a logistical standpoint, I mean, you know, obviously every business is different, but just your the company property that's in the office and it's like, you know, you're going to need a computer. I mean, obviously at this point, we're all pretty familiar, pretty familiar with Zoom or something comparable to that. I think Zoom kind of took the spearheaded the whole thing, but yeah, just all everything you had to tra- essentially find a way as a, as a business to transfer everything that you had in the office setting in all these individual employees homes. And there was a huge learning curve I think a lot of businesses were able to to get through that, you know, fairly seamlessly. But you know, that that was hurdle number one for a lot of these businesses because they just had to figure out how we even supposed to communicate with one another, how we supposed to communicate with our clients. So just there's a lot of logistical issues that arose, and that I mean that that was probably the the big thing. What the through March March and then through through part of April as well. I'd say. Yeah, and and I think luckily like. From from our perspective, that was pretty easy to deal with because, uh, you know, we've dealt with telecommuting. We have telecommuting policies. These basic questions like, you know, who who pays for what? 
What about what if we want to basically spy on our employees of what they're doing at their at their house with their computer and these kinds of things? Uh, you know how sick pay works or uh, ADA accommodations work when you're working from home. All these things are that's not frontier law. That's been established very easy, and we've we've done previous podcasts and. And, and articles about telecommuting that will we'll link to this site. So that's that's pretty straightforward. It's probably a little bit different for where you're at versus where I'm at. I, I think in California, it's particularly San Diego. It's it's pretty common to have you know employees working from home, not necessarily permanently, but at least you know on Fridays, one day a week, or something to that effect. Or you know, not a big deal if they do. At Texas, it might be a little bit different, but that, that might be right. my biased opinion on or biased observation. No, you, you no, you're absolutely correct. And I think one thing that with our clientele, I mean, we, we did have a couple clients in the hospitality industry and so forth, but uh, sure. for the most part, our clients had office settings. And for the most part, everyone had the ability, it may not have been preferable, but they had the ability to work from home. Mm-hmm. And in fact, but, but we'll tell you, look, we operate a significant amount of our business is in Texas and California, and talk about polar opposites. You know, I joke around with, my, with our Texas clients is that look, all you need to know is California laws as, as for employment law, and so long as you comply with them, you're going to probably comply with every state in the country because they're so on 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 that one end. But everyone knows, like clients have seen a reported measurable thirty to forty percent drop in pro- productivity when people work from home. And of course, there's different philosophies of that, but I would say that our clients in Texas probably took that a little bit more seriously in the sense they were working much faster to work towards bringing those employees back to the office. And we have most of our clients in California, I think most of them are still working from home even today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, obviously you have if you know you have the ones that there's people that fit, have to be physically present or the business can't operate, like you said, uh, a restaurant, for example, obviously you can't have people working from home in that capacity or any type of, when you have supervision over other people, like any sort of center or something like that. But yeah, for, for the right. most part, the, the businesses that don't have, don't fit those requirements, it's, yeah, they've, they've pretty much stayed working from home. And, and I I've, don't know the exact numbers, but you know, at this point they've been able to, to operate. And it, there is the there's the, this. There was the added challenge of this, un, unlike your typical work from home scenario, because a lot of schools and daycares were temporarily shut down, or, or, or I th- you know, some are still permanently not in place. So, yeah, you have, you have kids running around. Right. That definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely changes things. But everyone was kind of in the. I had this conversation with a lot of different people, yeah. attorneys, clients, you know, everyone. Everyone was kind of in the same boat, and for the most part, was pretty understanding. Right. And, and I think that was a common issue here in Texas, especially where you have employers wanting to bring workers back to work and, you know, you have stay-at-home orders being lifted. And, but even if they wanted to come back to work, they still need to arrange childcare. And the schools are not open. The uh, childcare uh, facilities are not open. And, and what do you do? And, and, and for the most part, I mean, you know, we, we like to work with clients that are that have kind of similar values as us, and, and a lot of them did make accommodations as as they were necessary. But but there's some also some realities of of some employers that aren't able to do that. And I remember I don't know if you remember this, Matt. Like 
I'm I'm uh, reflecting as if this was a long time ago. I mean, we're, we're talking about you know six nine months ago, but I remember where everyone was trying to figure out whether they were an essential employee or not because mm-hmm. they were trying or a uh, business. They were trying to figure out okay, how can we justify bringing employees back when we have the stay at home order? And if you guys recall, most states and counties referred to the Department of Homeland Security's list of of essential workers. And it would be almost uh, comedic in the sense like you could pretty much figure out a way to become an essential worker if you wanted to. I know lawyers were essential workers for the most part. Arguably, that you know, I, I remember going on forums and people would debate the subtleties of, of that. But the the natural consequence of that is, you know, what is it? At the end of the day, if if you want to work, if you wanted to come into the office, you probably could justify doing so. Making your employees come to the work that for the ones that don't want to come to work, regardless of the essentiality of it, there was going to be some some pushback and some dispute, and it would it would be hard to bring an employee back that frankly didn't feel the feel safe um, to come back to work. And of course, we dealt with those questions as well. Right. I was I was going to say. I mean, we we had those situations and we had those conversations with our clients. And you know exactly what you said. You can find a, for the most part, you can find a way to to classify yourself as essential. And but you're going to have those employees that still were uncomfortable or unwilling to come back. And you know it's it's a case by case basis. And you know, obviously, we can't give a you know hard hard and fast answer on. What you can do, it is all based on the circumstances. But those were all; those were still, and I think those, for the most part, have been resolved. I would think some sort of resolution, one way or another. But those were definitely, I don't want to say tough conversations, but you know, it's it's a it's a tough decision for those employers to make on how to handle that and what to do, and they have to be careful to not make any snap adverse decisions that's that are going to come back to haunt them. Right, and and. Obviously, I mean, I don't need to to state the seriousness of of COVID nineteen, but one thing that kept coming up is, you know, everyone had a different level of risk management to this, right? Putting aside any political beliefs, right? I, I don't, I don't think this is a political issue, but there's definitely differences of opinion on the severity of the of the risk, and the problem with that conversation was the. The employer's perspective of their risk assessment versus the employee, it kind of doesn't matter what they are. You have to go to the lowest common denominator because one thing that we even discussed in our office, for the most part, as far as we knew, everyone in the office are 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 not high risk according to the CDC. But we don't know whether um, a certain individual in the office may have an underlying condition that does not need to be disclosed to their employer that they may actually be high risk, number one. Or we don't know if they have loved ones at home that can't be separated that are high risk, that if they were to contract COVID, that they would be exposing their loved ones. And so now all of a sudden, this conversation about testing, masks, and all this, you know, it has to be kind of balanced out. And here you have a lot of, just to be frank, conflicting messages coming from CDC, coming from local government, and the law not really matching up perfectly with how the situation goes. And so, so our approach was just a very practical kind of approach, you know. And for those that have worked with us, know this about us that we're not just about kind of the letter of the law. We 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 definitely go beyond that. 
to think about the spirit of it in the sense that even if it's legal to do something, the, the question is, is how do you, what should you be doing and what do you do to mitigate risk? And so, so we, we started kind of projecting certain messages, like for example, mask wearing, like, you know, the, there's differences of, of risks, you know, people have, we, we presented to most of our clients, like, look, you know, your policy should be not everyone has adopted this. Everyone has different perspectives on this, but and I'm not even talking about the law here. I'm just, it's just a suggestion. If someone else is wearing, wearing a mask and you're in close proximity to them, regardless of what the local order is, regardless of what the CDC says or, or doesn't say, our advice is always to tell your employees, look, if someone else is wearing a mask, you wear, wear a mask too. And the idea being that uh, the purpose, from what, I, from what we understand, the purpose of wearing a mask is to protect the other person. And if you want to create an environment that is cooperative, that promotes kind of a, a close close company and culture of that ma manner, th this is a very simple thing to do for your employees and to kind of create a safe environment. And you, you took, uh, I was going to talk about the evolution of how everything's happened with COVID and that was my next no, no, talking no, take, point. Just repeat it, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my, no, my, I, next, I think... my next talking point was just, you know, I, we... So just to recap, you know, kind of obviously it started, hit the U.S. There was initially a lot of work from home and all that. And then eventually you had companies trickling back into the office. And that's when the mask, the mask orders and requirements like that came into play. And that was another thing that employers had to navigate was, you know, like you said, it's if someone else is wearing a mask, you, you should probably wear it because uh, it's again, it's not for your benefit. It's for for their benefit and their well-being, their safety or even you know mental mental health. So that right. was the uh, the next kind. Obviously, there are orders uh, that were put down by different states and, and counties within the states. But that was kind of the next step. Is like, well, what should my should you know should my employees be wearing masks when they're in the office? What are the requirements? Uh, you know, how far right. apart how far apart do they need to be? What like what kind of things do I have to need have in the office? There was a lot of considerations, and we, there were CDC guidelines. So we're able to to work off of that, but it's you know it's still a difficult thing for employers to handle. Yeah, and and they were, but you know it's it's funny because the EEOC and CDC and these federal agencies they they were a little slow to react because I like for example testing. Okay, one of the major components of bringing people back to work was the availability of testing and those kinds of things, but. A question that came up early, very early, was okay. I want to bring my workforce back. Can I require them to test? Okay, and this is, I think, this is an example of frontier law. So, our firm took the position very early. The answer is yes. You can require and mandate COVID testing because, un, similar to drug testing, but even beyond that, this is more than just figuring out whether this person is intoxicated and they're. In an unsafe work environment, this is this is the effect of them bringing in a disease that's going to affect other people. So all the other arguments that would you know when it comes to freedom and when it comes to the uh, privacy of of your employees, these kinds of things were basically trumped by the by the safety of of fellow employees. That was our position. Only until and we probably took that position probably early March, and and that was at a time when when testing wasn't readily available. But it wasn't until April 
two months later that the EEOC actually took the position that that was okay. And, you know, and so, so the problem was, even though that was our advice, it was very difficult. And we had to give this caveat, like this is our opinion, but there's no, there's no guideline that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, has released that would justify, or even the CDC, that would justify with uh, as black and white whether mandatory testing is, is permissible. But that's our position. So, of course, for two months, you know, some clients that were risk adverse, they're like, well, I mean, if we can't mandate testing, then I don't think we're going to bring any employees back to work because it's, it's just too risky. And you know, that's the result of, uh, you know, kind of slow and acting and it, it's, well, putting aside whether they're to blame or not, it's the point that this was a very volatile situation. And like I said, frontier law, there wasn't, there wasn't guidelines, there wasn't regulation to deal with this issue. Yeah. And then, so that got me thinking about kind of the, the, I don't want to say the, the op, the reverse of that, cause it really isn't, but a situation where you have, I guess, on the other end of the spectrum, you have an employer. You're talking about employers who, when you know, mandating testing. Uh, what about the employers that didn't want to do any sort of testing at all? Because we, right. we had that, we had that as well. Which yeah, we that too, yeah. Obviously, is more risky. And, you know, since there's been, at least in California, there's been a new law that's been put into effect. I'll just real quick. I mean, there, it's just there's specific notice and reporting rules for when there's a. Uh, when you have an empl- employees have had had exposure to either somebody with COVID or somebody that has symptoms of it, or even somebody who thinks they uh, were exposed to it, something like that. So now, right, in Calif- yeah. yeah, now in California, there's a mandatory one business day. You're required to provide that notice to all of your employees. So, um, right. it's, a, it's a written notice, and it's for anyone who was in the same premises during this quote unquote infectious period. So I think you're going to see more of that pop up. Absolutely. I, I totally it. forgot about that because I remember we used to get those questions. It's like, okay, I had an employee called in sick. I'm pretty sure they have COVID. They were in the office two days ago. Can I, who can I tell? Right. And of course, like if, if this, to kind of highlight the, the issue, if, Someone came, if, if the same issue came in, but it wasn't coronavirus, it was, oh, I just, my, my, one of my employees just told me he has can't, he or she has cancer. Who can I tell? Like that, that's not the, that's, that's not even a question, right? Like, yeah, you, that's you easy. don't, you, you, yeah, that's easy, right? You don't tell anyone. There's no, no need to tell anyone. But when you're talking about a communicable disease, then it's like, okay, now it's a different question. And can I name the person? Do I? Can I just say like, hey, there might have been a possible case, you know? And and the law is not as straightforward as you think. And and again, this is another area where slowly the EEOC and other state regulatory bodies started to give some guidance on on how to do this. Uh, by the way, the, the the answer to that, the general rule is that you can inform. You limit the amount of information as much as possible to the extent that. Those that have been exposed know that they've been exposed. It becomes kind of goofy because when you're in a small office, then you see someone that's not there. It becomes obvious yeah. who that person <laughs> is, right? But the principles still apply. Is it? Yeah, I mean, it was the same thing with sports. It's this, you know, a player on this team is tested positive. It's like, well, it's probably the yeah. one who's not playing. I, I would, I would suspect. <laughs> yeah. But. yeah, exactly. But I mean, what it's you know, it's the best you can do. So it's. You know, you're following. You're still following the regulations at that point. So, 
You know, we, we have right. been, we had that happen. Yeah. I mean, in fact, uh, we had it happen multiple times now. I think it's been mm-hmm. a kind of re- now, now it's kind of business as usual and everyone kind of knows what to do. Uh, almost everyone's experienced it now. And, right. uh, you know, uh, and then, and then one thing I want to remember is to talk about was this aspect of testing to the access to care. You know, the very early on, there was there was two sets of legislation, and by by now, pretty much everyone has heard of these. The first one is the Family First Act. I think it's FFRCA, right? Is it FFRCA or Family First Coronavirus yeah. Act? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Family First Coronavirus Act, and then the second one was the CARES Act. And both these bodies of legislation were actually pretty incredibly dense. It touched on so many different aspects of, uh, you know, like like Matt said, we're having healthcare. It affected how healthcare operations work. It affected how sick leaves work. Leaves work. It affected how the how insurance reimburses a test and these kinds of things. And that was again another area of frontier law to me. It's like here you have a whole body of law that is not only being passed. In, in a very short period of time, but also being put in effect in a short period of time. Because keep in mind, like when the Affordable Care Act came into play, which is another big kind of thing, or any kind of tax cuts, or you had um, the, what is it, AB5 in California regarding the independent contractor law, the you know ABC test, all these big, huge legislations that came in. There was a large period of time before, before when it was dis- being decided to be passed and when it went, and then when it did get passed, and then when it was put in effect, within a one or two month period, these two bodies of legislation were all of a sudden put into effect, and we as lawyers had to decipher, you know, statutes that are frankly not they're not very well written. Any lawyer will tell you, you read through it, it's 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 not put together very well, and and apply that to these questions. I don't know, I I get kind of excited about it, but at the you know it was a. Uh, let's be honest. It was it was a little bit of a stressful time for us because it was not easy. I mean, I think this is what really separated good attorney or great attorneys from just the okay ones because here you're 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 kind of <laughs> going back to the basics and and figuring these th- things out as they go. Well, oh, if you recall too, it was a constant monitoring process because you know, like you said, the right. the new law gets put out, we read it, interpret it best we can, and then there there'd constantly just be updates with. With the frequently asked questions and other commentary, it's like, well, what about this? You know, all these different. It's like any sort of law is like all these different scenarios and hypotheticals, and just getting more details on that and trying to, you know, make the best decision you can based on the information available. So, I mean, and again, you, you mentioned how quickly it was all rolled out. You would expect it to be a little bit sloppy, just <laughs> with the amount of time. So, but you know, like you said, we. We, we took the law, we interpret it, uh, convey that to the client and, you know, have them implement it. And, you know, that's like you said, it what separates the, the, the good attorneys that are kind of on top of things versus the ones that aren't. Right. But I think the, I think the worst, worst drafted part or just the, the most difficult part of the CARES Act was this whole PPP loan. And any business owner, any business owner that's listening right now knows what I'm talking about. It was it was such a difficult time for business owners 
to navigate that, there was so much bad information going out there. I mean, I, I remember I remember talking to getting on many calls with clients and their banks, and these bankers didn't even weren't even saying the right information. And the problem is too is that you know you would see what would be in writing, and then the Treasury Department would release an FAQ and kind of keep clarifying because again this was it was it wasn't very well drafted, the CARES Act, and so they had to keep refining and, and clarifying, and and because you know I, I think as lawyers when we look at it like we were able to kind of derive what where we think the FAQs were going, and it was I, I think for the most part we were on top of things, but. When we would tell this to bankers and clients, they they didn't believe us, and like because it's like where does it say that or whatever. And then you know days later, the FAQ would come out and clarify. It's like a good example would, you know, we had clients that were convinced that even though they were they didn't meet the affiliation rules in the SBA, meaning they were how do I put this? They weren't considered a small business under SBA rules, and. And even though the CARES Act didn't necessarily specify exactly how these definitions are going to be applied, it became clear to us that SBA has been around for a long time, how what they define as small businesses or not, and how the affiliation rules apply, that those that didn't qualify under the SBA would not qualify for this PPP loan. That was not clear. Bankers were pushing people to you know, fill out these applications. And the thing is, these banks they didn't have any culpability. In fact, the CARES Act pretty much gave them a blank check to be able to give out these loans without any liability. Those that were liable, and we've seen it, are, are the ones that are actually signing these affidavits, attesting that you know all these things that the CARES Act requires. And of course, those are coming to a head. You have, you have literally millions of, of, of PPP loans that were actually given out that are now being investigated for either fraud that's the first thing to fall. But the second thing to fall that people don't realize is that I'm talking about outright fraud where you know people made up a business and somehow got a loan and, and falsified information. That's one aspect. But then there's another aspect that people who got loans that didn't qualify and should have known that they didn't qualify and now are going to are not, not going to be eligible for forgiveness and going to be investigated and even come with some penalties. Yeah, the whole process was kind of the wild, wild west. <laughs> looking back on it, but yeah, like you said, you saw at the beginning and news stories were pretty on top of it. You'd have the kind of the, the, the second category you mentioned, the the companies that didn't qualify, but nonetheless moved forward and got the actual funding. You saw yeah. some of those give those back right away. A lot of the which, public companies. Yeah. 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 I mean, which, you know, they're in the end, they're, I assume those ones are probably going to be fine for the most part just because they took the right action right away. But I, I, I'm not going to say with certainty, but yeah, you yeah. have the ones, th there's been a lot that's popped up. I mean, even now that are just straight up fraudulent. And uh, do you remember, I, I saw the figure recently of like what total amount has already been investigated and been fraudulent. It was, it was pretty significant. I don't know if you recall what it was. No, I don't. I mean, I I know it was a lot. I mean, there, there was a I think over a hundred and thirty billion dollars that were funded, a hundred and thirty billion dollars, and it's I'm we're waiting to see how much of that is actually going to be forgiven and paid back. And and you know we're, we're, this isn't you know I, I think we're well beyond the PPP kind of loans. I don't know if anyone anyone wants to go over the criteria. I think everyone's talking about forgiveness now, right? And and I, I should mention since it's topical, 
the Treasury Department did release a was it the Treasury Department or the SBA basically loans under fifty million or, or sorry fifty thousand which are I think a, an incredible majority of the loans those will be either not automatically forgiven but that process will be very streamlined whereas if it's above fifty thousand then you know you still have to go through the process and and that may or may not change I mean I think there's been a big push in legislatively to make that even easier. Of course, we all know what's going on. We're recording this before the election, and so we'll we'll see if you know how that turns out. But we we do sure. expect some changes. But but also remember, Matt, like a lot of our calls was also, hey, um, I'm trying to get a PPP loan and I can't get one. Right? <laughs> that was that, that was a lot of conversations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like I, that's why I said it was you know the wild wild west out there and you know, putting in every. Every contact you have that could possibly help help you out with it, but I think everyone, everyone we spoke with, I think finally got funded eventually. Yeah, yeah because because remember to, there was a time that people were worried it was going to run out, and in, and the the fund did run out. They had to expand the amount of money, and every no one knew that was going to happen, and so people were like, "Oh man, I I couldn't find a bank." You know, I went through Bank of America or Chase. You know, I'm not disparaging them, but some of the big banks were more difficult than others, and it seems like the the uh the the result is clear. The community banks not only did really well because by the way, they the banks bank money on these loans. I don't know if anyone realizes that. Um mm-hmm. they did really well in making money, but they also did an incredible service because they were able to process these. And the problem is is that if you were not a customer of that community bank, or if you didn't get in early enough, then it was much more difficult to go through. But once legis- uh, the Congress kind of expanded it, I think that I think the PPP loan program ended with some money left. Still, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars still left, I believe. Mm-hmm. So if you're still looking, might be uh, might be the time to to move forward with it. <laughs> no, no, the, the deadline the deadline passed, Matt. Don't tell people to do that. Oh, you, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, that's okay. Forgot um, about that part. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it, that I thought was that that I think I was more stressed about because I was kind of annoyed with, you know, I was just annoyed with kind of people giving bad information, and it was just so obvious. And the thing is, everyone was kind of selling themselves as they know what they were talking about. Everyone presumes everyone's their kind of own Google lawyer, and it's like, look. I, not not to be rude, but shut up because you don't know what you're talking about. And let me just tell you what it is, you know. And there was a lot of that that oh, you know we I'm, we try to be we're, we're polite. I, I don't speak that way <laughs> normally, but that's what I was feeling, right? That's what I was feeling in my head. Is like, look, just listen to what I'm saying, you know. Yeah. But it was a uh, it was a tough time. Yeah. So the this is kind of one of the initial things. Maybe not you know the first week, but I think definitely within the first month. Uh, I had a lot of discussions about the force majeure clause, which right. I, I had to learn how to spell majeure. Majeure. <laughs> majeure. So it's, well, I shouldn't say it's always at the back of contracts, but I'd say a good percentage of the time, it's kind of one of those throw in general miscellaneous provisions, which is yeah. kind of crazy looking that, back because it, that no one know, thinks about as, yeah, good. Right. But, and so in a nutshell, what it is that what the clause is it's basically if if the force majeure event is triggered it can render performance it, it could delay performance or excuse performance entirely it, it kind of it depends on obviously the the actual terms of the provision but basically 
what people were calling and asking about was like, well, we have this pandemic that's going on. Am I able to get out of this contract? And like right. any like any good lawyer, the answer was always it depends. So like I said, there's yeah. it, it depends on a few things. So one being was the actual pandemic was that considered a force majeure event? And you know, unsurprisingly, you didn't see that spelled out in the actual provision itself for a lot of these a lot of these clauses because it just wasn't something that was never even contemplated. That doesn't mean it's it's not going to apply, but it wasn't specifically named because a lot of times in these provisions you'll see just a list of different you know like fire or embargo or strike or, or something like that. But it was it wasn't a listed triggering event just because again it, it wasn't something that was really ever thought about. Conversely, now I, I've I've seen it pop up a bunch and even written it in myself to some contracts. So I think I think you'll see that moving forward. Yeah, I mean it seems like every every contract that like you know like. You, when you when you exchange basic contracts that you don't expect any kind of revisions to, it's like every attorney, ourselves included, now we have to double check the force majeure clause, you know. And it's yeah. it's a lesson learned for a lot of us. But I I keep hearing stories, you know, both firsthand and secondhand of, uh, and this kind of goes to business interruption insurance too. Is 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 people that have specifically put in pandemics, disease, and these kinds of things, or government orders that actually protect them in, in those events, whether it's an enforced majeure clause or uh, the kind of one of the other topics we want to talk about was, which is business interruption insurance. You know, tons of people have some kind of general liability insurance that may have a business in- interruption aspect to it. And those policies are typically triggered and designed like if you have like in here in Houston, we had Hurricane Harvey. So business interruption insurance claims were, you know, went through the roof where you had, a, you know, extreme floods. No one can go to work. No, the business was shut down. And so because your business was interrupted, you gained some kind of benefit from that. But a lot of these policies did not cover pandemics, epidemics, disease. And in fact, many of them had specific exclusions of such. But then I keep hearing, you know, a, a lot of people, but again, both firsthand and secondhand, that specifically paid a little extra, negotiated their policy to include that, and actually were able to recover a sizable amount of money. I mean, if you're able to trigger business interruption insurance at that right time, it could be a huge lifesaver. And so think about it. We've all seen it. We've all seen the restaurants. Some have closed. Some have stayed open. Some have closed, but then came back, you know, these kinds of things. And some of the aspect of those that did come back may have have to do with their their insurance coverage. That alone could have saved their business. And so it's not to say that this is not a contested issue because the you know, the insurance policies are like any other contract. They they're made up of words that require interpretation. And so some attorneys have taken upon themselves to make some clever arguments some are good, some are bad. It really depends on. I, I, I've, I've spoken to a couple of law firms that, you know, specific attorneys that all, they've, they've been for the past six months. They all they've been doing is reading um, policies, and they've read it over and over again. And, and each one is, believe it or not, completely different sometimes from the other. And, and so you see big companies like In and Out, the Houston Rockets that are suing their insurance carrier for coverage, and some of them. You know, some of them may win, some of them may lose. 
yeah, and you know, unfortunately, it's one of those things too. We're, we're not going to have answers on for a while, just because you know, in general, these sort of lawsuits take time. But the the courts have been completely backed up with <laughs> just because you had the, they were shut down for a while, or, or only well, at least in California, only emergency items were were being heard and now everything's still virtual for the most part and it's a whole mess so luckily we i mean i'm i'm thankful that we do primarily transactional law because we don't have to deal <laughs> deal with all those uh the issues and making virtual appearances and all that but, but yeah <laughs> right. just going going back to what you're saying I and mean, it's yeah i mean it, it could be i think that the the business interruption insurance more so i mean that, that could be a, a lifesaver to keeping a business afloat right and it, it uh, I remember we discussed. Uh, it was there was there's this company called what's it called something Machina or something. They do legal analytics and research and things like that. And back in May of this year, end of May or so, they they went through just federal cases because that's it's a more of a central database. But they found over 300 federal lawsuits just at that time. In two months that were related to COVID, and many of them were business insur- interruption insurance claims because the employment issues. Because by the way, there's probably another dozens of employment issues as well. Those are going to come up. The, the, a, a lot of them were also those force majeure breach of contract kind of things. Because keep in mind, like you know, I mean, when when there's a dispute that occurs, it's not often that it goes straight to a lawsuit, right? That's typically there's a there's a period of, of of dispute trying to resolve, and here after two months, people are filing. And why are they filing? Because look, I mean, they're in a desperate situation. If they don't get coverage, some of them, or if they're not able to get out of this contract, some of them, their business is done. And we saw that. We we, we saw plenty of businesses, uh, unfortunately, go under. Employees being laid off, and and that's something we didn't talk about too. I mean, some of the unfortunate part of our profession is we had to deal with quite a bit of layoffs. A number. Yeah. I mean, massive layoffs and you know furloughs. dealing with the Warren Act, furloughs, all that stuff. Even you know changing changing hours, you know going to part time, and all these changes. As you guys know, you know your employment employees are some of your the biggest liability, both from a expense perspective, but even from a legal perspective. And the in a terminating event, anytime you terminate somebody, that is also the the, the highest risk point of your relationship with your employee, obviously, right? And so has not been easy times for sure. And and we've seen people, just to be frank, I mean, it, it, there's going to be employees that think that you're maybe using COVID as an excuse to terminate them for some other reason. So it's not like just because, just because, you know, COVID that you get a blank check, you know, you still have to cover your basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess on the, on the flip side of that, it, it might, there's been scenarios where it kind of helped too, you know, right. but obviously again, it's, it's all fact specific. So we're not going to get into any of those details, but, but you're right. It's, those are some, t- <laughs> there's no, I mean, as a, if you're the, the head of a business, it's, it's gotta be pretty, it's, it's not, not a fun time for, for people that to lay people off in the middle of a, especially at the beginning of a pandemic. So, right. But I mean, anyone that saw the unemployment numbers across the country, it, it was quite a bit of that. Yeah, right. By the way, I think this is our most depressing episode, but maybe I'm trying to think what else. <laughs> maybe uh, 
I can think of a couple. <laughs> I'd have to go uh, back. I'll, I'll start listening to episode one tomorrow and, and, and see. Right. I mean, I, I am curious of, you know, I, I know everyone's kind of going through COVID fatigue, but we, we thought at least we'd share a little bit of our perspective. I think it's, it, it, it is a little unique in the sense of how much we get to see. Uh, and, and frankly, just uh, we're very thankful, frankly. I mean, uh, our, our firm has been able to sustain itself through, through these times. And I think that's, that's mostly because, you know, we've had the opportunity to provide these kinds of answers to, to our clients. And, even, and I know our clients have been going through great difficulty as well, even with as much, as much of an answer we can provide, we can't, you know, we can't get, you know, our, our firm can't be alone in getting rid of this virus for sure. And so I am interested to see what people think as well. Let's see if I'd, I'd love to hear from all of you what, what your experiences were during this time, especially anything that we may have missed because we definitely didn't cover everything. And we'd love to, and of course, we're active on social media. So, uh, you know, please uh, reach out and, and comment to us. We'll be free to answer your questions. If you want to leave us a very positive review on, on iTunes and all the other podcast platforms, that would be very appreciative. Obviously, that is one way that we can get more listeners. And we really appreciate that. Definitely. I was going to say to, uh, like last time, to, to, thank our sponsor, but <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was appropriate or not. Are they still, did they come back after the, uh, behind the buy series? Hopefully. Well, they, let's put it this way. They're very supportive. So maybe, maybe we should thank our sponsor. I mean, they've been a, yeah, you uh, know what? Yeah, they, they did. Well, even if I'll have to check to see, even if they, uh, if they paid for this ad, but yeah, we'll just thank them again. Anyways, we'll send Poshla, them a yeah, Poshla PC, Business corporate law firm practicing out of California, Texas, New York, and Illinois. So check them out. Well, that is our episode. I, I honestly, I feel a little emotionally exhausted. So I think this is a good time to end it. Well, I mean, you cr we crammed. What is that? Seven months. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> eight months. Seven, months. seven, eight months into uh, less than an hour. So yeah, makes sense. Well, very good. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Yep. Keep it sound. Keep it smart. You just listened to Legally Sound Smart Business with Asar Pasha and Matt Staub. For more information about the podcast, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. This podcast is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening to or engaging with the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice but rather is produced for entertainment and educational purposes only. Do not rely on the information on this podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and does not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. This podcast may contain portrayals of clients by non-clients, reenactment of scenes, and persons which are not actual or authentic, and depictions which are a dramatization.